The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. If just a lot of anti-Semitism was enough for a Holocaust, there wouldn't have been, so to speak, the Holocaust, because there wouldn't have been Jews around in 1941 to experience it. But in fact, you know, what happened in just a given week in 1941, you basically kill as many Jews in that week as in the entire previous history of pogroms in the whole history of Eastern Europe. That was Timothy Snyder talking to us about his new book on the Holocaust. People in Britain, I think, in the early 80s wanted some kind of new story about Britain. And it didn't have to be Thatcherism. It could have been a left-wing version, but they wanted new ideas. They wanted people who would shake things up. And that was Andy Beckett on the United Kingdom in the early 1980s. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our first podcast of October 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with Timothy Snyder, Birdwhite House and Professor of History at the University of Yale. Timothy's 2010 book, Bloodlands, Europe Between Hitler and Stalin, won numerous awards, and he's now followed that up with Black Earth, The Holocaust as History and Warning. I met up with Timothy at the offices of his publisher in London to find out how he's seeking to challenge a great deal of received wisdom about the Nazi genocide of the Jews. There have been many books written about the Holocaust, particularly in recent years. So what do you feel there is still new to say about the subject? I think, I think there are three things that can still be done. Locally, the, the whole body of Holocaust history has been based on German and West European sources. Whereas the Holocaust actually happened in Eastern Europe, and it happened chiefly to East European Jews. So there are sources and their experiences. You bring those back in, and the story is different. Second thing is, to go global, um, the, the, the historical field has generally moved across national imperial boundaries and has tried to make planetary arguments in the last 25 years. That hasn't been so true with the Holocaust field, and yet it's important because Hitler thought in planetary and global terms – um, and if you don't understand those thoughts, and also if you don't understand how he thought about the history of global empire, the Holocaust doesn't make any sense. And then finally, because we think we've understood the Holocaust, we've made a tilt towards the memorial, the commemorative, the symbolic, the visual. And what I'm concerned about a little bit is that we don't actually understand it and that we've moved away or haven't really learned the lessons that we might, that we might take from it if we treat it as a problem of interpretation, which is mainly what I'm up to here. So are there any particular myths that you're seeking to explode about the Holocaust with the book? One of the reasons why this, this, is, this book is not going to be a popularity context winner is that I'm starting from the assumption that we've got many things wrong and the things we don't have wrong we have backwards. 
So some of the things we have wrong are we associate the Holocaust with German Jews, whereas most of them actually survived, and those who died were only about 3% of the victims. We associate the Holocaust with concentration camps, but concentration camps were not the way that the Germans killed Jews. Most Jews who were killed, who were killed never even saw a concentration camp. They're not how the Holocaust progressed, and they're not, they were not by any means the main way that Germans killed Jews. Um, and another thing that we, we tend to concentrate on in fact, that most of the famous books about the Holocaust are devoted to is the slow consolidation of power by Hitler, which is very important as a precondition, but it's only one precondition. The Holocaust could only happen after German power got outside of the boundaries of Germany. It happened not so much because Germany was a strong state, but because Germany destroyed other states. Those are some of the myths. And that, that leads us to at least one of the lessons that I think we've got backwards. Since we've concluded that the Holocaust is about one strong overbearing state, we've drawn lessons about destroying other states, for example, which I think are exactly the reverse. The Holocaust was only possible because states were destroyed. And if you, if you accept that, that leads to very different conclusions about what, for example, you know, the Americans should have been doing in Iraq. So really, we've been spending, in your opinion, too much time focusing on the history of Germany when looking at the Holocaust. We should be talking more about the history of, say, Poland, of Belarus, Latvia. It's those countries that really have got a lot of the preconditions. Yeah, look, I'm in a really luxurious position because there are wonderful historians, German and British and others, who working on the basis of the German sources have sketched out extremely well what actually happened in Germany in the 1930s. But what I'm saying is that that's not enough. I mean, just from the point of view of perspective, one has to have the voices of the 97% or so of Jews who are living beyond Germany. From the point of view of how such a thing could happen, one has to have the comparisons. One has to look at Nazi anti-Semitism to be sure, but also compare it to the Polish and the Romanian and the French varieties, because those did not actually lead in the same place. And once we make that comparison, we can see what was special and what was especially and horribly functional about the Nazi version. Also, if we just have all of Europe in mind before 1939 before the war begins, then we're much better able to see how the war transforms societies. If we just look at Germany and then bring Europe in in 1939 or 1941, we can't actually understand what the destruction of states and societies means for Jews and for everyone else. So a big theme of your book is about how the destruction of state is the, the crucial thing that, that enables the, the Jew, large number of Jews to be killed. What, why is it that a functioning state help preserve the Jews? Because in some ways that might give you the, an apparatus you can use to hunt down and kill Jews. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you look at it from the end, Jews who lived in stateless zones had about a 1 in 20 chance of surviving. Jews who lived in states, and this includes Nazi Germany, had about a 1 in 2 chance of surviving. So there is an explanatory problem, which I'm trying to address. Um, let me answer your question in the negative. Destroying states creates the potential for, for killing Jews because it removes state protection, because it allows the Germans to use local institutions in a way that they were never intended to do, because it breaks conventional practices, creates zones of anarchy, and precisely zones of experimentation. The Germans experimented beyond Germany in ways they could not experiment inside Germany. How do states protect Jews? Well, the most obvious way, and it's really simple, and we take it for granted, is citizenship. The Holocaust only happened to people who didn't have citizenship from the German point of view. It only happened to Jews whose states were destroyed from the German point of view, or to Jews whose states abandoned them. The Germans, and this is, I think this is really interesting, the Germans would not actually kill Jews who had a passport of a state that the Germans recognized, unless the state was willing to let it happen. Um, likewise, foreign policy, insofar as a state exists, even if it was killing Jews itself, as Romania was doing, Romania killed 300,000 Jews, a sovereign state 
could, for reasons of foreign policy, shift its policy and stop doing so, which doesn't make Antonescu a wonderful human being. It just shows that in a sovereign situation, you can change course. And the final thing, and this is maybe the most paradoxical, is bureaucracy. We think that bureaucracy killed Jews. I, I think it's actually the truth is close to the opposite. Insofar as there was a bureaucracy, that meant that people were individuals whose case had to be somehow be processed. The Germans actually struggled with bureaucracy at home the entire time. When they got abroad, they could destroy other people's bureaucracies, create bureaucracy-free zones. And that's how they found the way actually to kill German Jews. They never found a bureaucratic way to kill German Jews. That simply never happened. What happened was they sent German Jews to places like Wuj or Minsk or Riga, places which had actually been thriving Jewish metropolises before the war. But once the Germans destroyed institutions there, those became zones, politically black, legally empty zones where Jews could be killed. It's interesting what you said about how the Nazis respected citizenship and even including of, um, you know, Jews in Germany and, and other countries. But how does that square with certainly Hitler's and Nazis' desire to eliminate the, the entire world of Jewry? It seems surprising that anything would stop them to doing that. It does, doesn't it? And, and it? and it puts it puts a break on our thinking alongside them. We're tempted to think alongside them in their own racial categories. And in fact, in order to understand both how they succeeded and how they failed, we have to bring the political categories back in. They could do what they liked, and Hannah Arendt basically said this, they could do what they liked only to people who had lost citizenship. Only they could they could behave the way they wanted, they could experiment the way they needed to, only where the state was destroyed. They would have liked to kill Jews all around the world. I agree with that. Hitler's fantasy was that Jews controlled the entire planet and eventually they had to be exterminated in some way or another. But they could, in fact, only do it insofar as political order was destroyed. And coming back more to, I guess, the origins of the Holocaust, where do you see Hitler's and the Nazis' anti-Semitism coming from? Has it come from the centuries, millennia old European anti-Semitism, or is it more a new scientific, biological racism? The thing which is extraordinary about Hitler is that he was on, so to speak, the right wing, even of his own party. It's it's an extraordinary, not coincidence, but it's an extraordinary fact that someone that radical could come to power in the major European state, even in the 1930s. There were other fascists who were less radical than Hitler who came to power. His ideas were radical to the point of being coherent. He's not just an anti-Semite who is more of an anti-Semite. He's someone who has a coherent worldview, according to which the world is a world of struggle, Races are supposed to take what they need and starve other races. And insofar as that is not happening, it's always the fault of the Jews. So the Jews invented Christianity, they invented Bolshevism, they invented the law, they invented the state. They invented everything which might restrain us from killing others in the name of racial prosperity, in the name of propagating the race. That is a an extremely consistent and ruthless version of the 19th century commonplace that science is politics and, and politics is science. There's a particular variant of this, which is the Judeo-Bolshevik idea, the idea that Jews are Bolsheviks and Bolsheviks are Jews, which has its particular origins in the end of the Russian Empire and the beginning of the Soviet Union. That comes out of the Russian Civil War. Hitler has this basic scientific, as it were, anti-Semitism. The particular anti-communist version he gets from Germans and others who are, who are fleeing the early Soviet Union. That is, even for the time, quite an extreme extreme view. Did did the, the Nazis and the other perpetrators of the Holocaust, did they share this view or were they, was their motivation somewhat different but coincided enough with Hitler to allow them to follow him? Mm -hmm. Let me start a slightly different way. It would be, in a way, a good thing if you had to be a Hitlerian anti-Semite to kill a Jew because that would make the threshold for killing a Jew very, very, very high. It would mean that it didn't happen very often. Roughly half the perpetrators were not Germans, Many of the Germans who killed Jews were 
not Nazis. And even in relatively few of the Nazis, I think it's fair to say, actually shared the entirety of Hitler's worldview. It's pretty clear, for example, that Himmler, who was in practice the architect of the Holocaust, it's pretty clear that Himmler did not, in fact, accept this entire circular view of, of the world. So the tragic thing for us as people is that you can be drawn into this view of the world. You don't have to accept it from the beginning. You can be drawn into it step by political step. And the things that you do, joining a party, discriminating against another human being, or in the end, murdering someone, those acts can bring you into the worldview as well. Even if you don't accept it mentally, the fact that you do something makes the worldview become the only acceptable excuse for what you've done. And how willing were the wider perpetrators of the Holocaust? To what extent did they have a choice in what they did? And, and how much do they sort of actively participate? It's very tricky because you, you, can't, you can't limit it down to a binary of willing or unwilling. Um, that's, I think that's really oversimplified. In terms of the people who were not Germans, they very often killed Jews for motives which were not directly anti-Semitic. Or to put it in a different way, if just anti-Semitism killed Jews, then there wouldn't have been Jews in Eastern Europe to start out with because anti-Semitism was so widespread in Eastern Europe and for a very, very long time. So if just a lot of anti-Semitism was enough for a Holocaust, there wouldn't have been, so to speak, the Holocaust because there wouldn't have been Jews around in 1941 to experience it. But in fact, you know, what happened in just, you know, just a given week in 1941, you basically kill as many Jews in that week as in the entire previous history of pogroms in the whole history of Eastern Europe. So something special was going on beyond like anti-Jewish sentiment to make this possible. A lot of it was politics in my view anyway. A lot of it was East Europeans who had collaborated with the Soviet Union showing the new German masters, when the German masters come in, that they can be trusted. The Nazi idea that all Jews were communists and all communists were Jews, this Judeo-Bolshevik idea, was very, very convenient for people who were not Jewish because it meant that they could push all the responsibility off onto the Jews. And interestingly, anti-Semites in Eastern Europe, active German collaborators, political collaborators, would tell others, oh, you collaborate with the Soviets, you get a clean slate if you kill one Jew. And that's just an example of how politics can work. People also collaborated for other more banal reasons, like they didn't want to be deported to Germany for work, they wanted to bring in the harvest, whatever it might be. And it should also be noted that everybody in Eastern Europe, and in fact, all Germans who killed Jews, they also killed other people. There aren't cases of collaborators, or in fact, for that matter, of Nazi perpetrators who only killed Jews. They all killed other people. So when we make an explanation, we have to make sure that we're capturing the totality of what happened. And do you believe that Hitler and the Nazis' goal was always genocidal? Or how much credence do you put in plans that they, they might have deported all of the Jews, for example? I think that for them, deportation was always a kind of box with a false bottom. Because the, the central idea in Hitler's thought is that Jews are responsible for concepts. And the only way to get rid of the concepts is to get rid of the Jews. And so when Hitler says Madagascar, or when Hitler says the wastes of Siberia, what he means is, I'm going to put the Jews in some extremely inhospitable place where they can no longer confuse people with their concepts, where they'll turn against each other and where they will die. So the thought from the beginning is, a world without Jews. Um, that's the thought from, from the very beginning. And then the question is, how do you get to that idea. The Germans themselves were surprised that they could kill so many Jews so quickly. They were surprised that so many people helped them kill so many Jews so quickly. In autumn of 1941, you get reports from the Einsatzgruppen, from Einsatzgruppe A in, in, in the Baltic states saying, we have found here an opportunity to resolve the Jewish question. It goes without saying that was an unexpected opportunity. They didn't realize it would go that way. So for me, the, the idea of eradication, of elimination was there from the beginning. And what's morally horrible is not that they planned to kill the Jews. What was morally horrible is that 
it was indifferent to them whether it was some kind of fatal deportation or whether it was direct shooting. Since the Jews were not human beings, the matter it didn't matter how it was actually carried out. Do you think that the, the, the period of the Holocaust really steps up? So it's 1941, 1942, 1943. Is that born more of the triumph of Nazi Germany over the Soviet Union or more actually a kind of reaction to their impending defeat when things begin to turn against them. It's a horrible misfortune that the Germans succeed in conquering the world homeland of the Jews. And right at the moment when that has been achieved, it becomes clear that they're losing the war. So the world homeland of Jews is the stretch of territory from Poland through Belarus, Ukraine, into Western Russia. That's where most of the Jews of Europe live, in that stretch of territory. And that's exactly what the Germans conquer. I mean, the Polish campaign in 39, but then the Soviet campaign in 41, get them all the way to the outskirts of Moscow. And so they have, except for the Jews who flee, of course, they have basically the world homeland of Jews under their control. In that sense, they've won. They've won a lot of territory, but strategically they've lost. And they know it, although they can't say it. The closest they can come to say it is, now it's time to punish the Jews for what's happened to us, right? They can't, you can't articulate the thought that we've lost this war, but you can articulate the thought that someone else is to blame. And Hitler does articulate it in December of 1941. And by then, the Germans have shown to themselves that they can, that they can destroy Jews in large numbers. They've killed about a million by that point. And from that point on, the event that we call the Holocaust, the final solution by murder, spreads to all the territories under German control. How far do you see the Holocaust as a unique historical event, which I know this is quite a contentious question. Yeah, I mean, it's one that I've had a lot of time to think about. And I, I, I guess I, I come down by saying that I think unique is, is actually trivializing because all historical events are unique, right? Mm-hmm. This conversation is unique. There's never going to be one just like it. I think the, the more powerful words have to do with precedent. So the Holocaust was unprecedented in the sense that nothing like it had happened before. There was no attempt to actually remove a whole people from the face of the planet before. So unprecedented, I accept. But within the word unprecedented is the word precedent. So now that the Holocaust has happened once, it is in fact a precedent for the future. So what what do you think were the conditions or what changed that allowed something, I would say an unprecedented event to happen? Was it the advent of modern military technology? I'm I'm a little bit less on that side. I mean, I think it's it, it, if you're looking at like the, the the deep deep causes, one of them is imperialism. I mean, the idea that you you see people whose land you want as as being racially or in some other way categorically qualitatively inferior to yourself, which Hitler takes to logical extremes. Another root cause is the transfer of thinking from the rest of the world to Europe. So Europeans basically always saw their own states as legitimate, but they saw the, the states that other people might have created in North America or Africa as illegitimate. Hitler transfers that thinking from the rest of the world back to Europe. And the moment that you transfer that thinking, you, when you treat Poland as it were like Africa, which is a comparison they explicitly made, um, th- at that moment, things are possible in Europe that weren't, that weren't possible before. Another deep precondition is something we all know, which is globalization. When, you, when you're thinking globally, it's very tempting to, to take shortcuts because the world's complicated. But if you t- but a conspiracy is a kind of shortcut. If you can explain everything that goes wrong, whether it's the Great Depression or the Communist Revolution or, or whatever it might be, by, by way of Jews, then you've taken a shortcut, which is wrong. But, you know, to use Hannah Arendt's word, it creates a fictional world in which you can operate, in which you can tell stories. And actually, by telling stories in the fictional world, you can make things happen in the real world. You can bring people into your story. And as they bloody themselves, your fictional world, in fact, becomes the real world. Those are some of the deeper causes. The technology, 
I mean, I, w- I put a little bit less emphasis on that than other people because I think that the technologies that were used to kill Jews were bullets. Bullets are most important because they killed half the Jews and they showed that it could be done. Carbon dioxide or automobile exhaust, which was a technology which just happened to be to hand. And then the gas chamber, even at Auschwitz, or they're not really very complicated things. So I accept the, the organizations of states and technology were important, but I think probably the other things were a little bit more important. To what extent do you see parallels, and there's something else you've written about, between the crimes of Stalin's Soviet Union and Nazi Germany? I mean, parallel is an interesting word because it suggests that they don't touch. And sometimes they don't. I'm not in the school of thought which says that in the 1930s, the Germans and the Soviets were in some kind of intimate, you know, dialectical relationship and they learned a lot from each other. The evidence just does not bear that out. There are certain points of contact that the Soviets invent the party state, for example, which is important for Mussolini, and then indirectly for for Hitler, they invent that idea. And they're similar in some ways. They're both internal colonizers. The Soviets colonize themselves. The Germans want to colonize some of what the Soviets have already colonized. That is, they're both obsessed with Ukraine. That's a similarity. And then there are moments they make contact. The moment they make contact, which is most important for me, is the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, the agreement to invade Eastern Europe together. I emphasize that. And it's interesting because that's usually something that national historians talk about. The Poles, the Lithuanians, the Latvians, the Estonians want us to remember the Maltov Rimtra Pact because it destroyed their states. It pretty much goes missing completely from the history of the Holocaust. And I think that's a big error because it's at that moment, the joint Soviet German attack on Poland, that states are destroyed basically wholesale. Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland all go by the wayside relatively quickly. And that sets up the zone where something like a Holocaust can can be possible, which isn't, I want to emphasize this, to say that the Soviets intended that exactly. But I think it's a, it's just a fact that the Holocaust started in the zone where the Soviets first destroyed states with their own tried and true methods, and then where the Germans came in and destroyed the Soviet apparatus. That double collapse of politics created the, the zone for experimentation where the mass killing actually started. So the Soviets inadvertently laid a lot of the preconditions for the Holocaust? Yeah, we have to record what the Soviets did. I mean, just to sort of honestly set the scene, you have to know that the Soviets deported roughly half a million people um, after they invaded and occupied that part of Eastern Europe. You have to know that most of the arrests carried out by the Soviet secret state police happened in this little bit of territory in 1940, more there than the rest of the entirety of the Soviet Union. You have to know that the Soviets killed 22,000 people at Katyn and, and, and other sites, not least because a lot of those were, about 7% of those people were Jews, and so their families are then part of the history of the Holocaust. You have to know those things, and that, but you also have to ask how that's related to the Holocaust. And in my view, the way that it's related, partly it's the elimination of those elites who might have behaved differently under German occupation than the rest of the population did. We don't know that. But partly it's a, it creates political possibilities. If, for example, the Soviet Union eliminates Lithuania, right? It, it, that creates political emotions, of, of the highest order, you know, if, if, if England were suddenly eliminated by America, right? I mean, <laughs> this, this creates emotions of the highest order. The Soviet Union eliminated Lithuania. Um, and this meant that there were Lithuanians who could be recruited for the task of what they thought would be the restoration of Lithuania. Again, that doesn't mean that the Soviets intended that, but it does mean that there was a firm political consequence here. There was a, there was a political resource that could be manipulated and used, which it was. And one thing that you talk about quite a lot in your book is about those people who actually tried to help and protect Jews. And I know clearly they were in the minority. So what do you think motivated them to act differently to most of their peers? The second part of the book is all about rescue, partly for sort of professional ethical reasons that I, I agree with those in the field who say that we need to remember, you know, for, just for Kantian reasons, we have to remember that people actually were able to do this and see them as, as, as exemplary. But also I'm testing the argument. The first half of the book 
Hitler rises to power, Germany is transformed, states are destroyed, the Holocaust takes place. In the second half of the book, we check to see how people can actually rescue. And it turns out that it confirms the argument that the people who can really rescue are the people who have close connections to the state. The main rescuers, if you wanted to choose a category, are diplomats. And this is not because diplomats are better people than others. It's because diplomats have the ability to offer state recognition in a zone where state recognition was otherwise absent. And so there are wonderful stories to tell about individual diplomats, and I try to tell them, but there's a principle there. As you move away from state authority, as you move fully into this black hole of statelessness, rescue becomes harder and harder and harder and harder. When you get down to the group of people who who do rescue with no institutional support and with no clear external motivation at all, two things are striking. The first is that um, these people really had internalized moral norms, which were invulnerable to institutional destruction. But the second thing is that that was extraordinary, not as a term of praise extraordinary, but extraordinary in the sense of absolutely exceptional. It was just not that true of very many people. One assertion you made earlier was about how, and this I think would certainly contribute what a lot of people think about, probably may be wrongly think about the Holocaust, is that most people didn't die in the concentration camps. So why do you think we've, we've got that wrong? Why? Because I think most people would assume the Holocaust is all about Auschwitz, is all about Sobibor, say. Where were the Jews being killed and why do we get that wrong? Okay, so let me try to start from the beginning. Jews were killed over pits. They were shot. That was about two and a half million then they were they were gassed in facilities where the main killing agent was automobile exhaust. That was about another million and a half. And then about a million or so Jews were killed at, at Auschwitz, mainly by Zyklon Be. And when you add those up and then add the Romanians, you get close to the canonical and basically correct figure of, of six million. When I say that they weren't killed in camps, what I mean is, above all, well, I mean two things. I mean, half of them were shot, but also the main places where, which we think of as camps were not camps. So you mentioned Sobibor, which is absolutely right. But Sobibor was not a camp. Belzec wasn't a camp and Treblinka was a camp. And it wasn't a camp. So the word camp pacifies in a little bit the reality. Because a camp has, no matter how horrible, a camp is by definition a place where you spend the night. And almost no one who arrived at those places actually spent the night. So those places I would call killing facilities or death factories or something, but they weren't camps. Auschwitz is what confuses us because Auschwitz was a pre-existing camp to which was out of the death facility. So even at Auschwitz, the vast majority of the Jews who were killed there, it's, I think it's correct, at least in some kind of narrow sense to say they never saw a concentration camp because they were separated at the platform and they were sent to their death in gas chambers. So they were actually never in a concentration camp. The ones who were registered, the infamous tattooing of the arms and so on, those are the ones who were selected for work. They were selected for the camp. And some of them actually survived because people do survive concentration camps, which is why we have a record of Auschwitz. But the ironical thing, which is hard for us to understand, is that we have a record of the part that wasn't the death facility. The people who weren't in the death facility could tell us about what happened in the death facility because they weren't sent to the death facility where there were no survivors. So, but in terms of the British and the Americans and why we see it the way we see it, it's because we liberated concentration camps. The, the British liberated Belzen, and that was horrible enough. That was horrible enough. Those, those piles of bodies of concentration camp victims who had been starved in the last few weeks of the war or who were dying and died even as their liberators watched – that was horrible enough. And and then when people realized that there was this thing called the Holocaust, those images um, became associated with the Holocaust. Now that we think the Holocaust is important, we Americans, you British, want to take responsibility for having done something against it. And that's the kind of that's that kind of moral leap which isn't doesn't actually correspond to the facts. 
we didn't actually get into Eastern Europe. The Soviets did. The Soviets liberated all the places where the death pits were. They liberated all of the death facilities, right down to and including Auschwitz. And then they didn't tell the story of the Holocaust. So we would like to think that we did more than we did. We would like to think the concentration camps were as bad as it got. And those are very, very natural thoughts. But sadly, they don't take us as far as we would need to go to actually understand the history. Your book also talks about the Holocaust as a warning. What do you see as, I suppose, the main lessons for today? Well, if I'm right, and in many ways I'd be glad if I weren't, but if I were right, if I'm right about the analysis, then we've got, we've overlooked one lesson and we've got one backwards. The one we've overlooked has to do with planetary thinking. What Hitler was up to was describing the world as a rush for resources in which anything which hindered that rush was somehow false. Um, he said, he said Jewish. And um, that kind of thinking has more plausibility in the 1930s when calories really were short, when food supplies really were uncertain in the way they are now. So one thing I'm concerned about is that if we miss this ecological aspect of the thought, we might miss how vulnerable we in the West or perhaps the Chinese or other developed societies might be if we lost a little bit of certainty about resources, which could well unfortunately be coming. And the lesson we may have backwards has to do with the state. Since we generally think of the Holocaust as happening as, an, as one element of the behavior of a strong authoritarian state, we then could draw the lesson that what we need is smaller states, or even we might draw the lesson that it's good to destroy states, as the Americans did in connection with Iraq. And I think that's, just, that's basically backwards. Now, the lesson of the Holocaust is, 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 is rather that a conventional state which recognizes its citizens, even a very imperfect one, is much, much, much better than the malevolent creation of the absence of statehood. This is important because it's not just in a way, it's not just me arguing this. Whatever I say, whether it has any resonance or not, we have already drawn conclusions from the Holocaust. It's already there in what we do and how we justify what we do. And so if we've gotten it backwards, that's rather serious. That was Timothy Snyder. Black Earth, The Holocaust as History and Warning is out now published by Bodley Head in the UK and Tim Duggan Books in the US. You can read a review of Black Earth in our October issue which is currently on sale. Also in this month's edition there are articles on the First Empress of Rome, the Battle of Agincourt, Alan Turing and Interwar Europe among other things. You can get hold of our October issue in all good news agents and digitally. And once again for this month, we're continuing our service of providing audio versions of some of the articles. You can listen to these on our iPad and iPhone editions and also online at historyextra.com forward slash October audio. Now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor, Emma McFarnan. Tutankhamun's tomb may contain two hidden chambers with his long-lost stepmother, Queen Nefertiti, buried inside, it has been announced. Archaeologists recently zoomed in on new, high-resolution images taken of the northern and western internal walls of the 3,300-year-old tomb and found markings in the plaster that are strikingly similar to those found by Howard Carter on the entrance gate of King Tut's tomb in 1922. Near impossible to spot with the naked eye, the markings suggest the walls of Tutankhamun's tomb could hide two burial chambers. Archaeologists believe a queen may be buried in the walls. One theory is that Tutankhamun, who died at the age of 19, may have been rushed into an outer chamber of what was originally the tomb of Queen Nefertiti. 
the Egyptian Antiquities Ministry has granted preliminary approval for the use of a non-invasive radar to see whether anything lies behind the walls. The results will be announced on the 4th of November, the same date that Tutankhamun's tomb was discovered in 1922. Meanwhile, tickets for ceremonies marking the centenary of the Battle of the Somme have this week been made publicly available by ballot. The online ballot for free tickets to the ceremony at Val Memorial in France on the 1st of July 2016 will remain open until the 18th of November, the day the First World War battle ended in 1916. The ballot is open to residents of the UK, France and the Irish Republic. Some 10,000 people are expected to attend the memorial, with 8,000 selected by ballot. There will also be events across Britain to mark the centenary of the battle. The British suffered about 420,000 casualties during the Battle of the Somme, which was one of the bloodiest of the First World War. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Before our next interview, here's a reminder that our Autumn History Weekends are now upon us. We've just completed a very enjoyable weekend at York, and in two weeks' time it will be the turn of Malmesbury, Wiltshire. There are still tickets available for some of the talks at this event, so if you'd like to get hold of them and find out more information, please visit historyweekend.com. Our second interview this week is with Andy Beckett a journalist who has written widely on post-war history. His new book, Promised You a Miracle, focuses on the United Kingdom in the early 1980s, a period of great political, social, economic and cultural change. A few weeks back, and before the election of Jeremy Corbyn as Labour leader, Andy spoke to our reviews editor, Matt Elton, who began by asking him why he had decided to write this book. It was a period that I was always interested in because it seemed a bit mysterious, this sort of bit of early Thatcherism where Thatcher was very unpopular, where Thatcherism didn't appear to be working, where everything was kind of in doubt, where there were the terrible riots in the inner cities. It was a very kind of turbulent time and it didn't really seem that it had ever been fully explained in things that I'd read. Um, the, The events later in the 80s were all very well known to me. I'd written about what happened in the 70s. But the early 80s was this sort of mysterious time. And it was also a time where I was becoming politically conscious because I was 10, 11, 12, kind of pre-teen, quite interested in politics, becoming conscious of things like the Falklands War. Um, My father was involved in the Falklands War. So on a kind of personal level, it was interesting. But also as history, it was interesting. Mm. I mean, it's obviously a period that people have quite strong opinions of, particularly the Thatcher element. Something that I didn't realise going into reading this book was that really Thatcherite policies as we now know them hadn't really formed at this point. Um, What kind of policies were the government at the time putting forward? Well, some things that we're familiar with 
had happened at this point, like the right to buy, allowing people to buy the council houses, this happened in the early 80s, and it's something I explore you know, in detail in the book. And that's obviously a policy that changed Britain quite profoundly. Um, but other things the government was doing were much less successful at the time. The way they were running the economy, according to this American theory called monetarism, was really working, especially in 1981, disastrously. The economy was shrinking, unemployment was going up. Um, this sort of magic formula that the Thatcher government had for rescuing Britain from kind of economic decline appeared to be going completely wrong. And the recession of the early 80s was in lots of ways worse than the recessions of the 70s, which are so notorious. So the Thatcher government in this time appears to be a kind of a rather ambitious failure. And that's something that's rather been written out of history. I think whether you like Thatcher or not, we generally think that she kind of won the debate. And this is a period where she wasn't winning the debate. It was all going wrong. And, and I think those sort of failure periods are always interesting to investigate. Mm. And she feared for her future, didn't she? She was worried about how things were going. Absolutely. I mean, she herself felt, and some of the interviewees said this to me, that she was going to go down in history as a tremendous failure. A lot of her own ministers and MPs um, thought that she was far too right-wing. A lot of them, the men, disliked her because she was a woman. And obviously outside the Tory party, particularly on the left, but not just on the left, a lot of people thought she was far too um, sort of socially brutal, that she was effectively sort of destroying the country. So she was a very beleaguered figure in this time until the Falklands War. And again, that's been written out of history. I think often Thatcher's troubles at the beginning of the 80s is just a little kind of prelude scene in films or books about her, maybe a few minutes or a chapter. Um, it's never seen as the main story, whereas I, I wanted to write a book that would make this kind of interesting forgotten period the main subject rather than just sort of sidelining it. Did you get a new impression of her having written this book? I suppose in the in the latter part of the 80s, when I was a teenager, I grew up with the idea of Thatcher as being this kind of rather regal, kind of dominant, sort of impregnable figure. And in the early 80s, the period I've written about, she's much more self-doubting, um, at times bewildered and kind of despairing. And yeah, that was interesting to me. It's like a different, more vulnerable Thatcher um, and perhaps in some ways slightly more likeable because she's less domineering. Mm. I mean, and the book's obviously full of huge kind of characters, huge personalities. Are there any other people that you interviewed perhaps that particularly stood out for you? Well, there's a guy called John Hoskins who was Thatcher's kind of main um, intellectual advisor in the early 80s who was an ex-army man who'd made a lot of money setting up his own computer firm in the 60s and 70s. Very, very right-wing, very charismatic, intellectual. And I interviewed him, and he was a very, very interesting guy to meet because although he didn't think Thatcher was quite right-wing enough, at the same time, he could kind of look at the bigger context, the bigger social and intellectual context, and he could give a sort of inside account of the kind of crisis of Thatcherism, of quite how desperate she was in this period. So he was a brilliant interview and also a very charming guy. So one thing I wanted to do in the book was, although I think of myself as being broadly on the left, I wanted people on the right to be portrayed sympathetically and for the reader to almost forget who the bad guys in the story were meant to be. I quite like it in books and films where you sort of slightly fall in love with the baddies. And I thought that someone like John Hoskins, I don't share his politics, but I wanted charismatic Thatcherites in the book. So readers would get that sense of what it was like in the early 80s to be perhaps on the left, but to think, hmm, these Thatcherites have got something going for them, um, because quite a lot of people on the left did slightly fall in love with Thatcherism in the early 80s. Which is so interesting to us now when we think of it being a hugely polarised thing. 
Exactly. I mean, obviously, there was a lot of polarisation in Britain in the 80s um, on the left and the right, but especially in the early 80s where Thatcherism was weaker, but also a bit more seductive. I think once um, Thatcherism is, is sort of bullying all around it later in the 80s, then people do take sides definitively one way or another. But at the beginning of the 80s, those sort of boundaries haven't quite been formed, which is another reason why the period interests me, that, that there's a lot of people in Britain, I think, in the early 80s wanted some kind of new story about Britain. And it didn't have to be Thatcherism. It could have been a left-wing version, but they wanted new ideas. They wanted people who would shake things up. And a lot of people, just as Thatcherism appeared to be failing, um, a lot of people were quite intrigued by it. Whereas I think once you're on top or dominant, you become less interesting or less sympathetic to people. Mm. Why do you think people were hungry for something new, particularly coming out of the 70s? I think because... At the end of the 70s, Britain had some pretty significant problems. The economy was struggling. There was a sense um, that trade unions had become too powerful. I, I think that the decline of Britain in the 70s has been exaggerated. I think for a lot of people, the 70s were still pretty good times, which is why we have all those documentaries featuring, you know, flares and glam rock and, and kind of shaggy brown carpets. Because actually in the 70s, a lot of people had a lot of money, working class and middle class people for the first time and were buying a lot of stuff. But nevertheless, there was an anxiety about the future. And also, I think we mustn't forget that people have been thinking about Britain being in decline really since the Second World War, if not earlier. So there have been things like the Suez kind of humiliation in the 50s, the economic troubles of the 60s. So by the time you get to the early 80s, people that follow these things, which is not everybody, they've had sort of 25, 30 years of, of people down the pub saying, Britain's in decline, we're the sick man of Europe, we're in trouble. So that had kind of built up. And I think that kind of decline story, in some ways, people have got a bit tired of it. They've been hearing it for so long. So I think in the early 80s, there's a hunger for people who are going to tell a new story about the country. And that comes out quite a lot in culture. Um, a lot of films of the early 80s, like Chariots of Fire, involve heroes of a sort that you never would have got in films of the 70s, which would have been much more downbeat. So I think there's a kind of hunger for heroes, rescue, um, for, for a kind of national revival that's there. And I think it's that appetite is something that Thatcher exploited. Mm. Yeah, you write in the book about a year of flags. What do you mean by that? And how, I mean, how did that evolve reshaping or re-understanding Britain's past, I suppose? Well, the year you're referring to is 1981, and that's the year that Chariots of Fire comes out, the film about the heroic British athletes of the 20s, um, the 1924 Olympics. Um, it's also the year of Diana and Charles's wedding, and it's also the year of Botham's Ashes, which was a sort of extraordinary series of cricket matches where Ian Botham won in a kind of comic book fashion, almost single-handed against the Australians. And this is a time when cricket was far more of a national sport than it is now. So there's this kind of concentration of things in sport and culture, sort of heroic narratives that really kind of stir people in a way that's, that seems interesting and sort of disproportionate, that when um, the England cricket team won a particularly key match at Headingley in 1981 in the summer, the players who were in that match talk about, after the match, driving down the motorway away to the next match and people sort of tooting their horns and talking to them as if Britain has just won another war. There's a sense of people responding in a way in a, in a very, very excited way to what are, you know, fleeting events, a cricket match, a royal wedding. These are not really profound things, but people were hungry, I think, for, for some kind of good news story in that time. And that's why I write about those things, because I think it shows the appetite that was there.
Do you think that people were trying to trying to re-understand what it meant to be British in the face of a decade of being downbeat, as you say? Yes, I think... I mean, I remember as a child in the 70s, I was born in 1969, so I can remember certainly by the end of the 70s when I would overhear adults talking, they always talked about the state of the country in slightly downbeat terms. And I remember being slightly impatient with that. I think when you're a child, you want, you know, a story with a bit more kind of energy and hope. So I can remember at the beginning of the 80s, um, when these slightly more upbeat narratives were being told through sport and even through some of the language the government was using, I found that quite exciting. I thought, you know, why Britishness doesn't have to be just about gradual retreat and about this old, slightly exhausted country. It can be about a country that can remake itself, that can come back in some way. Um, so I don't think it's a completely new version of Britishness, but it's like a different phase of Britishness where we stop being quite so self-critical and self-loathing and start being a bit more kind of bullish. Um, as well as talking to loads of people, you did some on-the-ground research and went to some of the places that were central in this story. What kind of places did you go to? Well, probably one of the most revealing places I went to was the Falklands, because obviously the Falklands War is a kind of pivotal moment in this story. It's the kind of event that in some ways rescues Thatcherism. But, and, and the Falklands War has been written about, you know, an enormous amount. But I felt that in order to understand what happened there, I really needed to go there. So I went there for um, a couple of weeks and spent a lot of time interviewing people and also just kind of tramping around. It's not until you're in the Falklands, which is a bit like North Wales, kind of, you know, treeless, um, you know, stony ground, all kind of marshy ground, very hard to kind of walk across. It's not until you're there that you appreciate quite how difficult it was for the Thatcher government to win a war there and to win a war very quickly, which it needed to do because it's physically incredibly difficult terrain. So I felt it was really important to go there to kind of get an, a true understanding and to visit the old battlefields and also to talk to the Falklanders. Um, and one thing that fascinated me was a lot of the people I spoke to without any prompting from me were very, very critical of Margaret Thatcher because their view was that the Thatcher government had messed up by allowing the Argentinians to invade and that the war was just her clearing up her own mess. And that was a whole kind of perspective on the war that I didn't have until I went there. You also went to Liverpool, um, which and I wasn't aware of the role that that city played in this story. That's right. I mean, I think now, you know, in the Britain of today, Liverpool is maybe a, a slightly more peripheral place. But in the Britain of the early 80s, um, Liverpool was a very, very important city and, you know, the, the football team obviously was the kind of dominant football team, but also, you know, the music, the teardrop explodes, Echo and the Bunny Men, a lot of those bands from the early 80s were, were very big then, but also it was a very troubled city economically and there were terrible riots, as we all know, in Toxteth in 1981. And again, I wanted to kind of understand the landscape of Toxteth because Toxteth now, although it's changed a bit, is to some extent still this slightly depopulated, rundown area. And you can really see how um, the riots had kind of built up over decades, the tensions that led to the riots had built up when you go there. So Liverpool represents, if you like, the kind of crisis of Britain in the early 80s in its most extreme form. But also Liverpool University had this guy working there called Patrick Minford, an economist, who was one of the most fierce advocates of Thatcher's economic policies. And he actually, using kind of quite primitive sort of room-sized computers, developed a, um, a computer model which would effectively demonstrate that Thatcher's economic policies were going to work. And you fed in all this data and they demonstrated, the computer demonstrated that her... Uh, her rescue package was going to work. And of course, it, it didn't work initially. But I was fascinated by this idea that Patrick Minford 
was working at the university in the basement with this big computer literally up the road from where the riots were happening. And at one point during the riots, he and some of his colleagues from the university actually had to go to Toxteth and rescue one of their colleagues, who was also a Thatcherite, um, from the rioters because the rioters were just working their way through Toxteth and this guy lived on one of the affected streets. Um, a book that I remember really uh, kind of influencing me and scaring me when I was young is When the Wind Blows, the Raymond Briggs yes. book, which features in your book, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah. yeah. Why do you think that's particularly telling of, of the time, I suppose? Because the early 80s is a time when fear of nuclear war is really kind of peaking. It's it's a moment in the Cold War where relations between East and West are particularly bad because Thatcher um, was obviously critical of the Soviet Union in quite a confrontational way. Reagan was um, the newly elected president in America, and he was also very confrontational towards the Russians. The Russians had a kind of ailing regime under Brezhnev that was getting a bit desperate. So it's a period where relations are very tense between East and West, and also a new generation of nuclear weapons have been created. So cruise missiles, which the Americans were going to deploy at Greenham Common, which is um, something that features very heavily in the book, were coming along. The Russians were deploying their own version of cruise missiles. So there was a really, there was fear in kind of popular culture, but also amongst sort of strategists and politicians that there might be what was called a limited nuclear war that would be fought just in Europe. And I remember as a child, um, being scared about nuclear war in a way that I, I never am now. And my kids don't think about nuclear war for a minute, even though there are plenty of nuclear weapons. But in the early 80s, it was a period of real anxiety. And Raymond Briggs's um, very brilliant, very bitter book, um, When the Wind Blows, about a kind of elderly couple who follow all the British government's advice about how to protect yourself against a nuclear war and then die a kind of lingering death alone in this kind of shelter in, the, in, their, in their house. I mean, it's a, it's a just a, it's a brilliant but absolutely terrifying book. I mean, almost unbearable to read almost as an adult. Mm. Um, and some of the advice that was actually given to people at the time was kind of almost laughably inadequate, it seems now. That's right. I mean, the government put out films and also leaflets um, at the end of the 70s and in the early 80s um, called Protect and Survive. And it advised you to sort of find a, a reasonably secluded corner of your living room and build a shelter out of doors, old suitcases full of sand, old coats, and to build a little shelter to protect yourself, um, which you were supposed to do in the sort of hours or minutes before the nuclear war actually happened. So even if you had been able to build a shelter in time before the bomb dropped, if the bomb dropped right on top of where you were living, then the shelter would be obliterated. And even if it didn't, the government's advice was very sketchy about how you were then meant to survive for the next weeks or months while the air landscape around you was all radioactive. Um, and you know, how would you have enough food and water? Um, what would you do when you eventually emerged from your shelter? And the government really gave this quite feeble advice about what to do. And that was another reason why people were so anxious, because they thought this is a a fear that we've got and the government isn't really on top of the situation. Did that lead to people responding in any way? Were there kind of efforts to kind of square this difference? Yes, a little industry um, built up, which I write about in the book, around um, you know nuclear shelters which you could buy. So if you had a big enough garden, you could buy one of these shelters you know, for the price of a sort of garage extension and get your lawn dug up and get something you know uh, installed under the lawn. Um, there was also this, a story which I uncovered of some entrepreneurs um, who proposed building an enormous um, 
underground city in a former disused quarry outside Bath, which was going to be somewhere where you could effectively buy a kind of anti-nuclear timeshare, that you would have a kind of pod in this underground city. And in a time of international tension, you would drive down the motorway to Bath, to this place, park your car on the surface, and then go into this pod where you would then stay for several years while the nuclear war kind of raged above ground. You, the title of your book um, t- is taken from a song. Yeah. Are there any songs that you think are particularly revealing of the period? I think. I mean, I think there are lots. I mean, I think British pop music in the early eighties was it was quite a sort of golden period. Not to be too nostalgic, but I think bands like ABC, Scritti Politti, even Duran Duran. It's a very kind of fertile period for quite sort of brassy, quite intelligent English pop music, a lot of which was very successful around the world in a way that probably hasn't ever been repeated since. But I think a band particularly like ABC, who I wrote about in the book, um, who started out as a rather doer, um, quite tough band from Sheffield called Vice Versa, suddenly, almost overnight, decided they were going to become a much glossier, much more commercial sounding band and changed their name to ABC. And I, I and they had big hits like um, they had big hits like the look of love, which I remember loving as a child. But also, I think the way the band changed tells us the story of that time about people transforming themselves, about becoming more interested in making money, becoming more ambitious. Um, in some ways, moving from the left to the right. Although the fascinating thing about ABC is that they they felt they were still true to their kind of socialist values. They were from Sheffield. They were all Labour voters. So they were quite conflicted about the way their career was going as opposed to the way their politics were going. And I found exploring that tension very, very interesting. It is interesting to me that people became materialistic yet still felt in some way left wing. How how did they manage to kind of combine those two things? I think people struggled with it. Um, I think people struggled with it. But I think we have to remember that the early 80s is a time where more people people are just more interested in having more material goods. People are more interested in owning their own house. More people you know, have got you know electrical gadgets in their houses. Their rooms are warmer. They turn the heating up further. People want more comfort um, in their lives. And that's a trend that had been building up through the 70s. And some people on the left thought, well, why does that have to be a contradiction? Maybe under socialism, you know, the, the workers can all have conservatories. You know, the, socialism doesn't have to necessarily be a kind of hair shirt thing. It's just the consumer goodies, in their view, had to be distributed more equally. And that's something that a lot of people on the left are kind of wrestling with in the early 80s, how to reconcile that kind of materialist, individualist kind of surge, which is going on around the world, even in the Soviet Union in the period, people are more interested in in buying stuff and, and having more comfort um, with what they see as a kind of, you know, socialist creed. How do you reconcile those two things? Can they be reconciled? That's a big thing. There's a big debate that's going on on the left in that time. Mm. What was the biggest challenge for you in writing this book? I think it was doing justice to the sheer amount of change that was happening in Britain then, that there's massive change in culture, in politics, in the economy, on the right and on the left with things like Ken Livingstone's GLC in London and all the radical things it was doing for women and for ethnic minorities. So there's a real kind of concentration of change. And when you're trying to tell that story, you're really talking about change happening in lots of different layers all at the same time. And how do you tell that story without it becoming a kind of huge narrative pileup? How do you separate out the layers? How do you show how the different things were connected? So that was the challenge of it, was doing justice to a real concentration of events. 
Mm. Something that really interests me is the idea of there being ripples that are still continuing outward from this fairly short period. I mean, how do you think we can still feel them now in 2015? I think one example would be the right to buy, that this change that Thatcher made, this big change around selling off council houses to their tenants, that the the current government are now talking about doing the same thing for people in housing associations, and they're explicitly linking their policy to the Thatcher policy. So that idea that you, the state effectively um, you know, coerces councils or housing associations to selling off property to people living in it, that's, that's, there's a big continuity there. Almost a kind of an explicitly made continuity, as you say, like a conscious desire to link these two periods together by the people in charge. Yes, I mean, I think for a lot of people on the right, this is a kind of glory period because they see Thatcher in these early years of her rule as being in real trouble and then finding a way through it. And that obviously in 79, she was elected with a small majority. She then became unpopular. And then in 83, she gets a much bigger majority. So looked at in in the in the sort of big span of things it's it's a good news story if you're on the right but of course what those people on the right often forget is that she only got to the 83 election because of rather chance events like the Falklands the formation of the SDP the fact that Labour were being led by Michael Foote, who was not the best Labour leader so it was a much more close run thing for the Thatcherites in the early 80s than is generally remembered and that's something that the book you know hopefully reminds people of mm. Can we see the trouble that the kind of left-wing parties, in inverted commas, are having now in any new light as a result of this period? I mean, in the early 80s, there were certainly sort of vicious battles within the Labour Party between the left, between Tony Benn and his supporters, and people on the right who were supporters of, of Dennis Healy and Jim Callaghan. And people fear that those kind of battles are going to be repeated if Jeremy Corbyn, who comes out of the Benn school, becomes Labour leader. I'm not sure that they'd be repeated in exactly the same way because in some way the world has changed. And I think a lot of Jeremy Corbyn's credibility with his supporters comes from things like his opposition to the Iraq war. I think the fact that Jeremy Corbyn was around in the early 80s and was a Benite, I don't think is that crucial actually to his makeup. I think it's a, it's a small part of his history. But yeah, there's certainly a fear in the Labour Party that there's going to be a repeat of that kind of infighting, which helped to keep them out of power for a long time. Um, and in terms of how people in society see each other and see themselves, were there long lasting effects from these years that we can still feel today? Yes, I think in the early 80s, a lot of Britons start thinking about themselves in a more business like way. They start thinking about themselves as individual brands. They start um, they start companies in, in, in much greater numbers than before. I think people become more kind of competitive, a bit more individualistic, probably a bit more hard nosed. And I think you can see in in the Britain of today, particularly the London of today where I live, it's quite marked by those years. Um, you know, you go to a cafe, you know, where I live in Hackney, and it's full of hipsters. And you know, in the seventies, their equivalents would have all been just sitting around, you know, you know, maybe smoking a bit of dope or having drifting conversations about politics. And now hipsters in Hackney, they've all got business ideas that they're kind of pitching to each other. And I think they're they're quite Thatcherized. Um, in that way, even though I'm sure if you ask them, they probably all vote Labour or Green. They certainly don't vote Tory, but they've been changed almost unwittingly by those years. Mm. So it's a cultural shift as much as a, a explicitly political one, I suppose. Yes, and a sort of psychological shift. It's a kind of revolution in the head. That's the phrase I use in the book. 
that the people have kind of mentally rewired in that time. I don't think it was just by the Thatcher government. I think this change was coming anyway. But I think the Thatcher government probably accelerated it. Mm. If you could somehow travel back in time to this period and ask a question of somebody, what do you think you'd ask? I think I would be really interested to ask some of the people on the left of the Labour Party you know, before the Falklands, when it looked like they might win the election in 82, 83, you know, how are you actually going to govern the country? How are you actually going to take account of this growing materialism? How are you going to fit your kind of radical left-wing ideas into the society that we see growing up around us? And I think that's the question I'd want to ask. What do you do if you win the election? Um, are there any heroes of yours from this book? I don't think I've had any sort of straightforward heroes. I mean, I don't want the book to be something that, that just talks about anybody in a completely sort of laudatory way. But I think certainly Ken Livingstone, who ran the GLC in this period, is, is a politician the book is very interested in because he represented in the early 80s. He was still very young, I think in his early 30s when he took over the GLC. He represented a new kind of left-wing politics that was more libertarian, more fun, a bit cheekier, a bit more kind of in tune with the modern world. The Livingston GLC was very interested in multicultural London, multiracial London. It was very interested in how do you reduce prejudice against gay people. It was kind of engaging with the modern world in a way that the left hadn't done much before. And the Livingston GLC... Um, ran London as in a, in a kind of guerrilla operation, kind of constantly taunting the Thatcher government. Livingston got people to put the London unemployment figures up in huge numbers on the roof of County Hall, which is directly facing the House of Commons. So Conservatives would look out their windows and see this every single day and tourists would photograph it and so on. And I like the kind of cheekiness of the Livingston GLC. Um, and yeah, I like the modernity of it. So I suppose he perhaps is, is one of the heroes of the book. But I don't want any reader to come out of it thinking that anyone is kind of perfect in any way. Livingston was also in some ways quite a bullying, quite divisive figure. I want everyone in the in the in the book, the kind of if you like the goodies and the baddies, to all appear flawed. Mm. That's a good point, actually. If this book could change people's opinions of this period, how would you like it to do so? I think I'd like people to think about how lucky Thatcher was that she didn't come to dominate the country and change the country purely through her own talent, large though that was. There was a huge amount of luck. I think I'd also like people to, to think that the traditional view of the 80s, which is Thatcher had all the ideas and the left was just kind of elderly Michael Foote and was a bit washed up as wrong, that the left actually had a lot of good ideas. And I'd argue that the world we're living in now where different races and religions and sexualities are respected more, even amongst people who are very much on the right. To some extent, that's a world that was created by the left in the 80s. I think that's been lost to history. So I'd like people to realise that the world we're living in now was formed by the left and the right in those years. It wasn't just the right. That was Andy Beckett. Promised You a Miracle, UK 80 to 82, is out now, published by Alan Lane. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but please do listen in next time when we'll be discussing the Bronte sisters and a remarkable Georgian artist. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook? where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast.